Second Samuel 4. So David has been reigning in Hebron for seven and a half years. That's that red dot. And he's the king just over Judah. Those are his people. And they've said, you're our king. And for the last two years, that green dot, Mahanaim, a guy named Ishbosheth, Saul's sole surviving son, has been reigning, but he's a puppet. He's not, doesn't have a lot of uh, strength on his own. Abner is propping him up. He's pulling the strings. Abner is Saul's cousin, and he's the commander of the army. Last week, we saw Abner change allegiance. He went from supporting Ishbosheth to supporting David. And he made a covenant with David, and as part of that covenant, he said, I'm going to bring everybody. So he's gone around to all the local leadership, the elders in all these towns, and he said, y'all want to follow David, let's do that. So his last words to David are, we're going to have a a sacred assembly, I'm going to gather all of these elders, and we're going to anoint you to be king over all Israel. So everything looks great, this peaceful unification of the nation under David. But then Joab who's David's nephew and commander of his army, murders Abner. Cold-blooded, premeditated, cowardly, actually stabs him in the stomach when he's uh, not ready for it at all. Kills him. And so that threatens to undermine this peaceful transition. And so we closed last week with David making these huge uh, public efforts to distance himself from what Joab has done. He wants the people to know, I don't have anything at all to do with that. You can trust me. I mean, he made a covenant with Abner, and if he kills somebody two hours, three hours, four hours after you made a covenant with them, you're not very trustworthy. And so David is saying, that's all him. None of that was me. And the people are receptive to what David is doing. So that's where chapter four picks up. But I will warn you, it doesn't get any better. When Ishbosheth, son of Saul, heard that Abner had died in Hebron, he lost courage. And all Israel became alarmed. That word alarm, that's how you feel. That's the emotion that you feel when you're surprised by something, uh, when you're threatened by something. So now Saul's son, that's Ishbosheth, had two men who were leaders of raiding bands. One was named Bana and the other Rechab, and they were sons of Remon, the Berathite from the tribe of Benjamin. Beeroth is considered part of Benjamin. Because the people of Beeroth fled to Gitam and have resided there as foreigners to this day. So all that geography is just saying they're from the same tribe as Ishbosheth. So these are his people. So you keep that in mind. They're in his army and they are his blood. Jonathan, the son of Saul, had a son who was lame in both feet. He was five years old when the news about Saul and Jonathan came from Jezreel. His nurse picked him up and fled, but as she hurried to leave, he fell and became disabled. His name was Mephibosheth. We'll see him again in chapter 9. I think that comment is inserted here just to show the disarray in Saul's family. He had been persistently rebellious against the Lord for decades, and it didn't affect just him. It affected all of his family. So here's his grandson. His grandson is five years old when his nurse, his nanny, hears that Jonathan, who's Mephibosheth's dad, and Saul, who's his granddad, are killed in this huge battle at the end of 1 Samuel 31. So because Mephibosheth, even though he's only five, is a male, he could be a threat. Eventually, he could be the king. And so his nanny picks him up and starts running with him and falls, and he winds up being crippled in both of his feet. It gets just the, the ripples of Saul's sin. Uh, we'll, we'll see them continuing to, uh, to spread all the way through the end of 2 Samuel, long after Saul is dead. 
So that's just a little bit on their family. So now back to the story. Rechab and Banah, the sons of Remon the Berethite, set out for the house of Ishbosheth. And when they arrived there in the heat of the day, while Ishbosheth was taking his noonday rest. So they get there. Ishbosheth is taking a nap. They went into the inner part of the house as if to get some wheat, and they stabbed him in the stomach. Then Rechab and his brother Banah slipped away. So there's chaos in Israel. At a minimum, there's a leadership vacuum. Abner was the one who was pulling the strings. He's dead. He was the one who was leading them into battle, so they don't have anybody to do that anymore. And he's also the one who established this covenant with David. And so they're wondering, well, is that, is that still good? Did David honor his side? I think they would say, yeah, David honored his side, but he made the covenant with Abner. So what does that mean for the rest of us? Isbosheth is not a strong leader, so he's lost courage as well. And in that vacuum, these two guys, mid-level army guys, say, we, we see an opportunity for ourselves. We've been in the army, so we've been fighting against David. I don't know how he'll treat us when he's in charge, but we can... So here's an opportunity for us to secure our future with him. And so they sneak into Ishbosheth's house when he's taking a nap, and they stab him in the stomach. They had gone into his house while he was lying on the bed in his bedroom. After they stabbed and killed him, they cut off his head. Taking it with him, they traveled all night by the way of Arabah. So you picture that. That's 80 miles they walked with a head. They brought the head of Ishbosheth to David at Hebron and said to the king, Here is the head of Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, your enemy, who tried to kill you. This day the Lord has avenged my lord the king against Saul and his offspring. David answered them, As surely as the Lord lives, who's delivered me out of every trouble, I seized him and put him to death in Ziklag. That was the reward I gave him for his news. How much more, when wicked men have killed an innocent man in his own house and on his own bed, should I not now demand his blood from your hand and rid the earth of you? So David gave an order to his men, and they killed them. They cut off their hands and feet and hung the bodies by the pool in Hebron. But they took the head of Ishbosheth and buried it in Abner's tomb at Hebron. Glad you came this morning. You could be at brunch right now. So these guys get to David, and their idea is, we're going to show David what we've done for him. And the way they spin it is, we were instruments of God. God avenged you through us. God used us to avenge you and to remove the last obstacle to you being the king. With the implication, therefore, you're going to reward us for this work that God has done through us. David has a completely different interpretation of what happened. He said, no, that's not, that's not the case at all. God does deliver me, but he, it doesn't look like this. You killed this man. Cold-blooded murder. The last time, it was eight years ago, the last time someone did something like this, if you remember 2 Samuel chapter 1, a messenger comes to David who's been at this big battle with the Israelites and the Philistines, and he comes to David and said, Saul's dead. And David says, how do you know? He says, because I killed him. Again, he's looking for a reward. It's a lie. He actually didn't kill him. He's taking credit for it. And David says, how dare you lay your hands on the Lord's anointed? And he has that man put to death. That's the penalty for premeditated murder under the Mosaic law. David's being righteous. This is justice. And so when these guys come and say, we killed him, and they tell him how he did it, we snuck up on him in premeditated, cold-blooded murder. The, the, the penalty for that's death. It's eye for an eye. 
And so that's what David, uh, the, the sentence that David pronounces. Again, 180 degrees from what they thought. They thought they were going to get rewarded. That's not how things work out. And then David publicly displays their bodies, again, just to show, I didn't have anything to do with that. I didn't, I, I didn't have anything to do with Ishbosheth being killed, and he's distancing himself from that. So for us, thinking about that, where, are there any possible connections for us in that story? The one that I saw I want us to look at for a couple of minutes is the, the difference in interpretation David has from these other two guys on the event. Those two guys are saying, it's just hard for me to say their name, that's why I'm saying those two guys. So those two guys, they're saying God used us. We're instruments in God's hands. And David's saying, no, you're not. God delivers me, and he doesn't deliver me through things like this. Now, David does believe God works through people. There's a story in 1 Samuel 25 where he's got 400 men, and they're on horses, and they're riding toward this guy's house named Nabal. Nabal has insulted David's men, and David has responded completely disproportionately. 400 men, and they're riding to kill Nabal and all the men in his house. Completely disproportionate response. Sinful. And then Abigail, who's Nabal's wife, hears what's happening, and she goes out, if you can imagine this, and she stands in the road with all of these guys riding at her, armed and angry, and she says, you don't want to do this. This is a sin. You don't want all of this blood on your head. My husband is a fool, but that, that, what you're doing is it's out of bounds. It would be a sin for you to exact vengeance in this way, and in verse 32, David sent you to me. What he sees is Abigail was a means of grace. She, Abigail, was sent by God to turn David away to keep him from committing this egregious sin. So David can hear and he can say, "Yes, God works through people." He just doesn't work through this premeditated murder that these two guys committed. And that's what I want us to talk about a little bit. What are the means through which God works? There's lots of them. We're going to talk about four. Unfortunately, they all start with the same letter. It hurt me more than it hurt you to have to say that. The four that we're going to look at this morning, pain, people, process, and prayer. So grace is a woman. That's a girl's name, right? So God has grace, and he wants to deliver it to you. And almost always that grace comes in a certain package. You can see there's a vehicle There's a channel, there's a means through which that grace is communicated. Rarely is it direct. As you read through the Bible, rarely would you say God's grace was directly applied to a situation. Almost always we would say it comes through A, B, or C. It's mediated. Think of grace as a person that God wants to send to you. He's going to put her in a car or in a truck. He's going to drive that grace to you, And there's lots of ways that he does that. We're going to talk about pain, people, process, and prayer. So pain. This one's unusual. The other three, people, process, and prayer, can be inspired by God. I would say pain almost never is. What I'm thinking of is if you're a victim, if we want to use that word. You've been wronged. You've been hurt unjustly, and so you're in pain. God can and will use that to further his purposes in your life. That can be a means of his grace to you, although it's not something that he authored. There's a difference between what God can use and what God can redeem and what God inspires or what God motivates. Joseph is a great example from Genesis. You remember the story. 
At this point, he's the youngest of, of 11. He winds up being the 11th of 12 brothers. He has dreams, and he unwisely shares them with his family, with his older brothers bowing down to him. That's not, if you're a younger brother, you don't do that. You don't tell that to your older brothers. And so there's a time where they're all working in the fields, and he's sent to them, and they see him coming, and they say, we're going to deal with him. And out of anger and out of hatred and out of jealousy, they sell him into slavery. And he winds up in Egypt, and he winds up in a guy's house named Potiphar. And he's, deal, he, he, he's successful in his role in Potiphar's house, and Potiphar's wife falls for him, and she throws herself at him, and he righteously says, I'm not touching you. You're another man's wife. And out of, in humiliation and in anger, she falsely accuses him of rape. And he winds up in jail. So you have these examples of, Dave, excuse me, of Joseph being a victim, in a sense, of other people's sinful and wrong choices adversely affecting him. And yet, if you read the rest of the story, you can see how God uses those events to get Joseph where he needs him to be, which is in the basement of Pharaoh's house. So when the time comes, he can be elevated to lead the nation of Egypt and to save his people, which is exactly what happens towards the end of Genesis 48, 49, and 50. In those chapters, you see all of that coming together. God did not motivate, lead, guide, inspire those brothers to sell Joseph into slavery. It was a wicked act they would be held accountable for. He did not motivate, lead, guide, inspire Potiphar's wife to falsely accuse Joseph of rape. It's a wicked act. She would be held accountable for. And yet, God's able to redeem both of those things. He's able to use both of those things to accomplish his his purposes. It, It speaks to his wisdom and his power and his greatness that he can use sinful choices to advance a righteous agenda. It's the verse that you all know, Romans 8, 28. God works all things together for good for those who love him. Joseph was committed to the Lord, and so God was able to use even sinful choices in his life, or excuse me, Sin that was done to him in his life to advance his purposes. So if you find yourself this morning in that role, someone has wronged you, maybe they're continuing to wrong you, someone else's sinful choices are adversely affecting you, maybe you feel like a victim in some ways, be encouraged. God can use that, and he will. The key for you is to not become bitter and resentful. You're done at that point. At that point, you've closed yourself off to the grace of God. You want to take a posture that says, I'm going to forgive as many times, 70 times 7. You just keep forgiving. I'm going to forgive these wrongs that are done to me. And God, I'm asking you to use this to advance your purposes in my life. I'm asking you to use this thing to your glory and to my good. And he will. If you maintain that posture of humility before him, if you begin to move into self-pity, cuts off his opportunity to use you or to use those things. And and if you get bitter or judgmental, then you're holding on to that person and to those things, and he can't use them any longer. So if you find yourself in that position, please take courage this morning. Take heart this morning. God can and he will use those things to further his good work in you, although it's nothing that he inspired in the other person. People process prayer. People, you know this. Every one of you can make a list of times somebody to you, you would say, they were the voice of God to me. They were the hands and feet of Jesus to me. They made a meal when we needed a meal. They gave me the phone call when I was needing connection or comfort or encouragement. They had wisdom when I was seeking that. We all know that God uses people in our life. He used Abigail in 
David's life. That's not difficult for most of us to grab onto. What becomes tricky in our hyper-busy and disconnected world is maintaining those depth of relationships. We're so easily isolated. And you see the picture there. The next frame would be that little baby, whatever it is, would be lunch for the lion. He's done. That's what, the, that's what they do. They find the stragglers and they eat them. And First Peter says, we, our enemy is like a lion. And he prowls around looking for someone to devour. I talk to people all the time after the wheels have come off. And what they say to me, almost without fail, is it began when I isolated myself. When I pulled myself out of accountability, when I pulled myself out of fellowship, when I distanced myself from people who love me and love God. Once I quit answering the questions then you've got a bullseye on your back. And it's a matter of time. It's rarely is it within a week or within a month. But almost like clockwork, it's within a year or two that you wake up and you go, Where, what happened? Where am I? You've isolated yourself from the body, which is a primary means of God's grace. One of the primary ways that God wants to work in your life is through people who love you and love God. If you don't have any of those people in your life, then you're hamstringing God in some ways. You're tying his hands behind his back. He can't get to you because you're not in community, because you're not in life-giving connection with the body. So one of the reasons we do small groups here. It's not just to put one more thing on your calendar. It's, it's our way of saying relationships are important to your growth and your development as a follower of Jesus. And so here's a context for you to develop those relationships. You don't have to be in one of our small groups. You absolutely have to be in life-giving relationships with somebody who loves you and loves God. If you're married, your spouse is not, that's not enough. That's too much weight to put on any one person. You need to be connecting outside of your nuclear family with two or three or four or five people. It doesn't have to be 20, but there's got to be some, both for you and for you to be that for them. It works both ways. Just like someone else, Rob can be a means of grace to me. I can be the same for him. It works both ways for us within the family of God. It's one of the reasons we talk about being led by the Spirit, hearing the voice of God. He wants to use you to encourage other people. He wants to use you to spur me on to love and good deeds, just like he wants to use me to do the same in your life. We live in a hyper-busy world, and so it's the tyranny of the urgent, and relationships are never urgent until they're broken. When the house is burning down, then the relationships become important, but pride or become uh, urgent to us. Prior to that, they're important, but they're rarely urgent, especially the type of deep relationships I'm talking about that take time to cultivate, easy to neglect them. And then we live in this world where we can believe that we're connected to people because we post something, but posting something and knowing someone are not the same thing. Sharing online is not the same thing as looking someone in the eye. You can't ask me a question. You can't tell if I'm fidgeting. You can't press me if all I've done is Make a post. You can do that, but don't confuse that with true community. It's not the same at all. It's not the same at all. The relationships that you need are face-to-face. You can't get that online. But we can, again, live in this illusion that we are deeply connected to people because we're putting at least some version of our life out for public consumption and we're consuming some version of someone else's life that they've chosen to put out for public consumption. 
That's not true relationship. That's maybe keeping up with somebody. It's not connecting on a heart level. I want to encourage you, find those relationships and cultivate them. God works through process and processes. I I had lunch with a guy this week who I haven't seen for six or eight weeks, and I said, how are you doing? And he said, I'm fantastic. And I I said, what happened? He said, "This I'm just going to tell you. I was in the grocery store, and I picked up this book, and it was Whole30. And I started doing it, and I'm sleeping better, and my emotions are leveled out, and I'm more focused in prayer. He's like, I, I can't believe I'm saying this, but it, it's working. God is using Whole30 as a process in this guy's life to bring a greater level of well-being. He does that. Some of you have done Dave Ramsey, and you would say, God used that to bring a greater level of financial health to us. When I had young kids, it was growing kids God's way. I don't know what the new fad is in parenting, but that whatever that thing is. And God uses that to help you with your kids or their, the marriage book or those things that we grab onto. Physical therapy. God uses processes for us. He uses things like to, to mediate his grace to us. One of the ways that he works, there's a story in 2 Kings chapter 5, there's a guy named Naaman. He's a commander of the Aram, the army of Aram. They're a foreign people. And he's excellent at his job. And he's very well known. And he has leprosy. And he's desperate to be healed. And he hears that there's a prophet in Israel who can heal him, Elisha. And so he says to his king, can I go? And his king says, yes, you can go to this foreign land. And so Naaman goes to Elisha and listen to what he brings. He brings 10 talents of silver, 750 pounds of silver. He brings 6,000 shekels of gold. Catch this, $750 million worth of gold. That's over a billion dollars worth of stuff. And he brings 10 outfits. I don't know why. (laughs) A billion dollars plus 10 outfits. That's what he brings. That's how committed he is. To his healing. And he finds Elisha's house and he goes to Elisha's house and hear this. Elisha, he knocks on the door and Elisha doesn't even come to the door. Elisha sends a servant outside. We don't want any of your stuff. You just go bathe yourself seven times in the Jordan River and you'll be healed. And Naaman is enraged. Enraged. Not just that the prophet wouldn't come out and meet him, but that he would ask him to bathe in this muddy river. He says, There are better rivers in my hometown than this. And he's leaving, excuse me, he's in a huff. And one of his servants wisely goes to him and says, Sir, if Elijah had asked you to do something great, you'd have done it. And if he'd asked you to do something heroic, you'd have done it. If he asked you to do something hard, you'd have done it. So how much more should you just follow his instructions? And Naaman humbles himself. And he goes to this muddy river, and he dips in it seven times, and he comes up the seventh time, and he's clean. He's been healed. And he leaves as someone who worships Yahweh, which for him, that's a foreign god, who worships the God of Israel. It's a phenomenal story. His pride almost kept him from being healed. He wasn't willing to follow the process that this prophet laid out for him. There's nothing magic about the Jordan River. There's nothing magic about dipping seven times in it. But for Naaman, in that moment, that was the word of God to him. Humble yourself and go wash in this nasty river. And he did, and he was healed. For some of us, we can be Naaman in some ways. God works through processes, but we say, I'm not interested in that. 
I want him to work miraculously and directly in my life. I want to wake up and it be done. I'm going to pray for provision and I want money in my mailbox. I don't want to have to get a job or go through the search process of that. I want to be healed. I don't want to have to take medicine or I don't want to have to go to counseling or I don't want to have to do physical therapy. Absolutely, God can work miraculous ways and we believe that and we pray for that. And oftentimes God works through process. Don't be so proud that you can't submit to that. Again, it's why it's so important to be led by the Spirit. Where is God leading you? You have a chronic condition. Could he be leading you to a new doctor? Could he be leading you to an aisle on the grocery store to pick out a book to say, how about this, this time? Many of us, though, we fall in the opposite ditch. We become, we worship our techniques. This guy said, I'm not preaching the gospel of Whole30. It's just working for me now, which is the absolute right approach. We don't preach the gospel of financial peace or CrossFit or whatever those that we don't preach any of those gospels we preach the gospel of jesus and god can use those things but he's not bound by those things and none of those things are universally applicable to all of us the way the gospel of jesus is but it's so much easier to trust in a technique that i can see than to trust in a god who i can't and so we can begin to put our faith and our hope in a process in a technique in some steps and we divorce god from that It removes the element of faith. That's why you rarely, I would say never, but I can't remember every one of them, you rarely see Jesus doing the same thing twice. He heals people different ways. Sometimes he speaks. Sometimes he speaks and touches. One time he makes mud and puts it on someone's eyes. One time, how about this, he spits in a guy's eyes. That's how he heals him. Can you imagine if every time Jesus healed someone, he spit on them? What would happen when we prayed for you to be healed? We would spit on you. Because we would have our faith in the technique. It's what he did. And we would lose any sense of faith, any sense of connections. We're going to take communion. This can become a dead ritual. We had a baptism at nine. That can be a dead ritual. Things that we do over and over again. If you read through the Old Testament, hardly ever do you see the same battle strategy twice. What God is saying is don't trust in the strategy. Trust in the God who gave it to you. God does work through process. Beware the temptation to worship the process. Beware of the temptation to do the process on its own. Wrote, divorced from faith. Go to physical therapy and pray before you go. Take Advil and pray before you take it. Go to counseling and pray before you go. Involve him in the process. Read the books. Do what the books say. But do what the books say in the spirit, not in your flesh, somehow trusting that there's a magic formula. And if we just say the right things in the right way, do the right steps in the right order, it doesn't work that way. Don't, God works through process. Don't trust the technique. Trust the one who gave it to you. Last thing, God works through prayer. You know this. God works through prayer. James 5, the prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. Many of us would say, yes, that is true. I am not that person. If you're a follower of Jesus, then you're righteous because God says so. 2 Corinthians 5, 21, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we may become the righteousness of God. 
If you're following Jesus, then God has declared you righteous. Therefore, your prayers are what? Powerful and effective. The issue for us is not that our prayers aren't powerful and effective. It's that we don't pray. That's the issue. The example. How about this for an example? Right after that in James, inspired writer says, here, let me tell you what it looks like for your prayers to be powerful and effective. Elijah was a man just like you. And we would say, he's not just like me. But that's what this inspired writer said. He's just like you. In a lot of ways, we have a leg up on Elijah because we live on this side of the cross. We, the veil has been torn. We can approach the throne of grace. Elijah couldn't. He wasn't a high priest. He couldn't move into the Holy of Holies. You can anytime you want. That's available to you. You have more access to the Father than Elijah did. But James says, Elijah, man, just like you, he prayed. Guess what happened? It didn't rain for three and a half years in his whole country. And then he prayed again and it did. Can you imagine? And what James says is he's just like you. He's just like you. Your prayers are that powerful and that effective. Can you imagine praying and it not raining for three and a half years? And then praying and it starts to rain. It's not a power trip. It's an invitation. Whatever you're doing tomorrow, having a baby, getting married, getting your driver's license, open heart surgery, whatever you're doing, is not as important as praying. Because when you pray, you get God involved in all of those things. Why would you want to do any of them apart from him? That's what prayer does. It invites God to get involved. We talk about this all the time. The issue for us is not that our prayers are not powerful. It's not that they're not effective. It's that they're never prayed. You have a, a father in heaven who is the God of the universe. We sang that second song. It starts cosmic and moves down very, very specific and personal. And he's both of those things. He's the one who never leave, who, who leaves the 99 to come after you. And he's the God who, by his word, spoke everything that is into existence. And what he says to you all the time is what do you want? What do you want? What do you want? And for what some reason we don't respond. We don't ask. We need to pray with more depth. Pray all the way to the bottom of something. Sometimes we skim the surface like skipping a rock. God bless my family. God bless my spouse. Bless my kids. Bless my business. That's great. It's better than nothing. What if you took a little time, put some feet to that, expand that a little bit? What does it look like to say, God, bless my business? What actually are you asking for? Specific prayers get specific answers. What do you want? I remember I was in a small group with a guy, and I can remember he reminded me of this the other day. I can remember him saying, and it was hard for him to say because it felt greedy. It wasn't at all. And he said, I want a million dollars in revenue. That's what I want. And they hit it. And they far exceeded that over the last several years. A specific prayer gets a specific answer. Not just, God, bless my business. I want a million dollars in revenue this year. That's what I want. What do you want? Not just, God, bless my marriage, but, God, I want to develop such a connection to my spouse. I want, to be, I want us to be best friends, not just co-parents or housemates. God, bless my kids. What do you want? What do you want for them? God, I don't just want them to find a good college or get out of high school and not have been arrested. 
God, my desire for them is that they would flourish in every aspect of life, that the best things that you've given to me, that you would put in them. That they would run past me and her. That's what I want. What do you want? God, I want to get married. God, I want to have a kid. I want to have another kid. I don't want to hurt every morning when I wake up. What do you want? Are you asking? Your prayers are powerful and effective. Let him decide yes or no. Don't decide for him because you failed to ask. And pray long. We don't pray deep and sometimes we don't pray very long. I don't mean the amount of time you spend in any one setting, sitting, but consistency. As I read through the Gospels, the element that I see, the two things that I see that Jesus highlights about prayer, one is faith. And don't get freaked out about that. I don't have any faith. When he talks about faith like a mustard seed, what he's saying is you have it. Like I can't come up with anything smaller. This is the smallest thing that I can give you. So you have it. If you're praying, you have it. Without, you, you wouldn't even be praying if you didn't have faith that God was there. So don't worry about that piece. It's persistence. It's not eloquence. It's not volume. It's not verbosity, the number of words that you use. None of those things. It's persistence, and all of us can show up. Pray with depth and the breadth, the, the persistence. Coming back again and again and again. And let's see what begins to happen and move and shape in your life. We're going to close with communion. The way we take communion here, you'll just logistics. You'll come forward, you'll break off a piece of bread, dip it in juice. We'll have gluten-free communion that will stay up here as well. You can grab that. After you take communion, and we'll talk a little bit about how to kind of position our hearts for that. We're going to have ministry teams here in the corner. And we'll pray with you about anything at all that you have going on. But I specifically want to pray for anyone who is sick. Anyone who is physically unwell. I'll say it that way because some of you have chronic conditions and you would say, well, I'm not sick. If, if, you're not, if your body is not whole, let us pray for you this morning. And you'll come forward in those teams. We're going to have some oil. And they're going to put oil on their finger. And they're going to make a cross on your hand, which is not magic. She's going to make a cross, and they're going to say, we anoint you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And they're going to pray for your healing. You don't need to bring your medical file with you. You just say, this is, this is what I have. I have migraines, or I've got a bad knee, or whatever. And they're going to pray for God to heal you. They're not going to pray, God, if it's your will. They're just going to pray, God, heal, whatever. There, there's, it, it, it's a means. We just said God works through means, and for whatever reason... In James 5, he said, if you're sick, come forward, be anointed with oil, and get prayer. And so that's what we're going to do. Again, it's not magic. There's no special words. There's nothing. The the oil, I I think, is a sham. I don't think it came from any place. It didn't come from heaven, I know. probably came from Costco. So just don't. There's no faith in those things. We're not putting any stock in those things. But in obedience, we're doing what God said and saying, God, meet me in this. Meet me in this. Just like communion. Some of you have taken communion 
512 times. And it's easy to make it just a ritual. But for whatever reason, Jesus said, when you get together, do this. Do this in remembrance of me. And so in faith, we want to come forward and say, God, somehow make this more than bread and juice. Somehow as I'm physically ingesting this, do something in my heart. Feed me internally. I don't even know how that works. But God, for whatever reason, you said to do this thing. And so I'm going to do this thing, but I'm not going to do it divorced from you. I'm not going to go through the motions. I'm also not going to idolize a technique, but I am going to come forward in faith and say, God, this is something that you've laid out, this service and this prayer, and I'm going to ask you to meet me in this, and we'll just trust that he will. If you're not comfortable taking communion, that's not something you feel like you're in a spot to do, then I certainly don't want to pressure you, but I would like you to come forward. If for no other reason, it's just very difficult for people to get around you if you stay in your seat. So if you would come forward with your row, And then you can just circle right back to your seat and you don't need to take communion and no one is going uh, to think less of you for that. We certainly don't want to pressure you to do something that you don't feel ready for. So I'm going to pray. If you're helping with communion and ministry, please pray if you grab some oil. It'd probably be great if we had about three prayer teams on each side just so it doesn't back up. If the prayer teams are full when you come, just wait. It's okay. Just wait for them. I don't want you to miss your opportunity. So some more people who are on ministry teams, this might not be your week, but if that's part of your thing, if y'all come forward as well, we need more. Thanks. You got to get prayer. You got to bust a finger. I know. All right, let's pray. One other word of instruction. When you go back to your seat, Bo will be singing and you can just join in worship. And also, that can be one of the ways that you're a means of grace to the people who are receiving prayer. Sometimes it can help kind of stir faith in people and make people more sensitive to the Lord. And so your worship, it's not just for you, it also affects the room that you're in. So when you go back to your seat, you can stay standing and worship with Bo. So God, again, we don't we don't get it. We certainly don't want to be magicians. Somehow feel like there's some power in this bread or this oil. We know that's not true. And yet in obedience, we want to submit. We don't want to be naming. We don't want to be too proud. And so God, in humility, we come before you this morning. God, my prayer is for the person who's taking communion for the 513th time this morning, that it would be real and alive for them as they break off bread and dip it in juice, that you would remind them of the work that you did on the cross for them, that they would sense your joy in them and over them, that there would be a deep sense of gratitude for your obedience, Jesus, which has made life possible for them. And God, I pray for the person who's taking communion for the first time maybe don't even know exactly what they're doing. Would you meet them in those trembling acts of faith? Would you communicate the great love that you have for them, to them, in a way that they can understand? God, I pray for all of those who are unwell, who are sick on any level here this morning. God, we confess and say we know there's not a magic prayer formula for healing. There's no power in the oil. But we do know there's power in your name. 
in your name, we pray that you would heal bodies this morning. As a testimony of the fact that you've not only forgiven us of our sins, but you've healed our diseases. That you're rolling back all of the effects of the fall and the curse. And God, I pray that those who are sick here this morning could benefit from that rollback. That they could enjoy a taste in their bodies of the coming kingdom. So Holy Spirit, would you move now in our hearts? Would you move now in our bodies as we respond faithfully to what you ask us to do? In Jesus' name, amen. You guys can stand and come forward a row at a time, please.